We're going off-road with Willy Pretorius, and as usual, we start our show with a novice section. Willy shares his incredible knowledge with the greenest of green off-roaders, and if you're a new listener, you can catch up on these chats on our recent stories on our website. So to recap, we've learned what the function of the differential is, the transfer case, and last week we touched on the diff lock. The differential lock is essential when you are in trouble and need to distribute power equally between wheels on the same axle, and in most cases this would be the rear axle. It's important to remember that the wheel or wheels not making contact have the most power being delivered to them, and if you need to get more power to the wheel that is in contact with the ground, the only way to do it is to engage the diff lock, which allows power so that you can move forward. Have I got that right, Willie? Yes, you got it perfectly right. And I'm actually proud of how you've come how far you've come with your four by four knowledge in this short period. <laughs> um yes, so the that's your the, your one differential lock and then we also covered a bit on the center diff lock for the all wheel all wheel drive or permanent four by four vehicles, which was works exactly the same as the other options. Um I think we've basically now covered all the mechanical side of your 4x4s, so we've, we've basically progressed to where the vehicles are now being uh, developed to be able to go off-road without a lot of the mechanical aids. So, for instance, how is a vehicle without any diff locks able to go off-road and still be very, very capable? Um, a good example of that would be like the Land Rover Discovery. Um, it does have an electronic diff lock in the rear that's automatically engaged, but it mostly relies on another type of system for, to enable it to, to go off-road. And how do you think it does that, T? Well, um, they must have some sort of traction control. Oh, you got it. Really? Yes. Now, it's important to know that there's two types of traction control in your vehicles. There's an off-road traction control, which is always active. Mm -hmm. And then there's your on-road traction control. Now, on-road traction control is your ESP system or your ESC, electronic stability control or electronic stability program. That's designed to keep your vehicle in a straight line in emergency situations or to keep you from rolling your vehicle when you have to swerve out for something. Okay. And most vehicles have that, including your normal on-road vehicles and your 4x4s. Is that something that's permanently engaged? You can disengage it partially. Um, a lot of vehicles have that little traction control button that you can press if you want to have a little bit more control over your vehicle like spinning the wheels as some of the young kids do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, that really doesn't have anything to do with your off-road traction control. That's a common misconception where guys think, well, there's a traction control button. So my vehicle does have off-road traction control. I see. It's not the same thing. So most of your vehicles, as soon as you put it into low range, your 4x4s, will switch that on-road tra traction control system off because it doesn't want you that system to interfere with your off-road driving. Yeah, the mechanics is completely different. Your, your requirements yes. are different. So off-road, you're going you're gonna to have a lot more wheel spin. The system is going to be at funny angles, and 
those G sensors that the ESP program uses is going to just go haywire. So most of your 4x4s will switch that system off. And then it relies on a secondary system to enable it to be capable off-road. Now, instead of having a mechanical diff lock, all that that system does is it uses your ABS system. Which is the braking? Yes. Okay. So what that does is it uses the wheel sensor, wheel speed sensors in your ABS. When one wheel is in the air, it picks up that that one wheel is spinning in the air. Mm -hmm. And no power is going to the wheel that's on the ground. It will then apply the brakes to that one wheel that's spinning in the air to slow it down, which then also allows the power to go to the wheel that's on the ground. Similar concept, different application. Yes, yeah. so very similar to your mechanical diff lock, mm. which just locks the two mm. together. This is just using the brakes to stop that wheel from spinning so that the wheel that's on the ground gets some power. And how would you say which one is more effective? I hope it's not a political question. No, it's, it depends. It's a really intricate uh, detail that you need to discuss maybe in a, in a later program. For the All beginner right. program, mm -hmm. we'll just talk around um, how to use it and we'll get onto that in, mm. I think, our next program. We'll talk around how to drive a vehicle with traction control because it's very different from a vehicle with just a mechanical lock. Vili, thank you so much for today's chat and for helping me to understand these intricacies. It's also a great vocabulary for a girl who's standing around the Bryflas fires, and I encourage all the girls to make sure that they listen to this insert and are able to enjoy this wonderful activity. So I'm going to hand over my chair to Gary now um, for the advanced chats with the 4x4 enthusiasts. Welcome back, Gary. Uh, I think for this week we're going to discuss something a bit different in terms of the basic recovery kit, what is required and what do you have. Mm, hi, thanks. Yeah, great to be back. Mm, if I think properly what's in my bag, I've got some gloves, a bottle of wheel bearing grease, Commonly known as clip drift. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I've got I've got a snatch strap. I've got another safety strap. Uh, I've got a snatch block. Uh, and a couple of D-shackles of various sizes and ratings. That sounds about right. Um, now, talking about ratings, mm. that's one of the most important and often overlooked parts of recovery equipment is that you need to get equipment that's properly rated. So for D-shackles or bow-shackles, which is preferred. Yeah. But you can use D-shackles even if they are rated. Um, usually you'll see the rating is forged into the, into the shackle. Um, so it's important to make sure that that happens. And then also for your snatch straps, your pull straps, all of those, that they need to have a rating on it. Now, talking about ratings in general... You've got two different rating systems. So the one is for metal. So for metal, you have, you've got the brake strength mm -hmm. and the workload limit. And for metal, there's a safety factor of, of about five built into it. So you know if you've got a workload limit of three and a quarter ton, which is your normal shackle size usually, mm -hmm. then that has a brake strength of about 16,250 
16,250 kgs because it's 3.25 times 5. Now for straps, the safety factor is only 4. Hmm. So if you've got a 3.5 ton workload limit strap, that's got a brake strength of 14 tons for an, for an example. So we always have to look at what is the best to carry for your vehicle. Um, something that'll not be too big and bulky. Yep, they can get heavy. Yeah, because you can. You, it's always best to have the biggest and the strongest equipment, but you limit it for space in your four x four. So you've got to have something that will handle the strain of a normal pull, and that will also be able to withstand the forces involved in an extreme, extreme mm -hmm. stuck situation. Um, so yes, I think your kit looks like the basic standard kit that I also recommend for people is to have one pull strap, one snatch strap, two shackles, a pair of gloves. Um, and wheel bearing grease. <laughs> and wheel bearing grease. That's for after driving. Yep. Um, but yes, uh, one also other piece of equipment, actually two pieces of equipment which I usually recommend to people is a spade yeah you can get a really nice foldable spade yep. that's small that can go just go into your recovery bag and another one that's really practical is just a set of sandbags mm. now sandbags is really light and very very versatile you can use it instead of having a sand track that you have to tie to your roof you just fill a couple of sandbags with sand with your handy spade and you wheel. can get out of anything basically out of most situations you can even dig yourself out with a spade and a couple of sandbags um, and and of course your jack that comes with your vehicle mm -hmm. and you can get yourself out of most situations that you can get stuck in without having to rely on somebody else to pull you so if if you doing the overlanding and especially if you're doing a lot of driving on your own it's always a good idea to have that with you and you don't have to spend so much money on a winch <laughs> yes yeah they're expensive they are expensive i think we'll leave winches and the whole discussion to around those day. for another yeah, day because that's definitely. a really that's really a, long one yeah that that's another whole topic there but um the other thing that i've also noticed is some of the guys have I've got recovery kits that are way too light for the job, and then they're trying to pull the army tank out of the mud. You know. Um. Yeah, it's always good. Um, in in my recovery in my recovery course, I do have a, a, a section where we do practical recovery, mm -hmm. but also in my basic course, I I tend to just cover the basics with people to say, okay, this is the kind of recovery equipment you need to look at. These are the forces involved in your vehicle. Um, so just. For instance, if you take your vehicle's um, weight, so you look at your gross vehicle weight, which I see you know, most buckies are around two tons, for instance, mm -hmm. between two to three tons. If you have a vehicle that can cover, uh, or you have a recovery equipment that can cover that weight, mm -hmm. that should be more than enough. Um, when you get really stuck, you're starting to look at maybe twice or three times your vehicle's weight. Most of your recovery equipment will still be able to handle that, but you might have to replace it afterwards. Yeah. 
Um, so if you just stick to just above your vehicle weight to be your workload limit of your recovery equipment, should be fine. then you should be fine. The other thing the guys do is they never keep the stuff clean. And then, of course, uh, snatch straps and that have a finite lifespan. They usually have a, a, a use-by date. A lot of the guys don't look at the date. And they think, well, you know, I haven't used it in five years. It's still going to be good. Um, not necessarily the case because the, the, the manufacturers will always set a limit as to how long that thing is safe at that rating before it starts to deteriorate. Whether it's UV deterioration or just age, um, some of the stitching doesn't last anymore as well as it used to. I know when we were doing high, high lifting equipment, you're looking at your straps every time out. So part of your pre-flight checklist should include take out your straps, make sure they're clean, not contaminated with brake fluid, not good for a strap. Um, just make sure that it looks good, feels good, and it's within the expiry date, you should be fine. No, that's a really, really important point, Gary. I think a lot of people also take their straps and they go and put them in the bag and they store them after they've used them in the wet, for instance, yep. which is really bad. Um, that's why it's important to have a recovery bag that's aerated, that your stuff can air and dry in. Um, the rating is really, really important um, that you, now that you mention it because a lot of the 4x4 suppliers actually don't submit their stuff for SABS testing. Mm -hmm. So that's something to really look out for. Now, I usually supply SecureTech equipment. Now, SecureTech is a lifting company, yep. and they also do some 4x4 equipment, but their main business is lifting, lifting. equipment. They so they make sure that all of the equipment is SABS tested and, and it's got correctly. the correct yep. rating. Um, and the other benefit of that is they've got a lifetime repair warranty on all of the equipment, mm -hmm. which means as, as long as you've got the equipment, and you think it's not up to standard, you can send it back to them and they will refresh it for you yeah. and redo the stitching for you and make sure that it's still up to the strength that it's required to operate on. It's a worthwhile investment, not necessarily the cheapest way out. So going down to the local shop, spare shop, and buying something that came from China is not necessarily a good idea. Yeah, um, it's always a good idea to have the right equipment for the right job. Yep. But also, like I said, have a look at when you buy, even from the 4x4 shops, yep. that the equipment that you buy is the properly rated and tested equipment. It should have a little sewn-on flag onto the strap to say... Yes, date, most of them have sewn-on flags, but um, even with the sewn-on flags, you get there's no standards ratings on them. Then they're not really properly tested. Yeah, the lifting guys have got a color coding, same as you have with the shackles. They'll have color, color codes on it. So if you know your codes, you can always ask. They'll tell you what the ratings are on the, on the different codes. So if somebody pitches up with a purple strap, I know more or less what he's capable of doing, as opposed to a, a green strap or a yellow strap. Yeah, but I mean, for us that's in the bush, you don't really you don't care you about can't the color. Really rely on that. You've got to look at yeah. the actual equipment. Okay, I Great. think that. It's still a huge topic for us to discuss mm. in future. We could we'll make movies. <laughs> but we'll get back to that in a later program. Great. Thank you very much, Gary. Thanks. Cheers. Bye.